I don't know what Sunday morning or afternoons look like in your home, but Sunday afternoons in my home look like a number of things, at least after church or a meeting and before our Sunday evening activities. It's the only time all week Dad has the remote, okay? I got the remote for a couple of hours, and, there, and my whole family knows there's one thing that we're watching, at least in the fall and into the winter, on Sunday afternoon, and it's football. Come home a few weeks ago uh, after church, and uh, the, the TV's already on because I've discipled my son really well uh, to turn on the TV. Texans are on. They're playing the Titans a couple of weeks ago, and I'm in the kitchen. The game's on, and he says, Dad, check this out. And I look at the screen from the kitchen pretty far away, and all I see is love you blue. It's the wrong color for the Tennessee Titans, the games in Tennessee, the games in Nashville. And I see love you blue. And I get a little closer, and I see the old Derek in the middle of the field, and Oilers written across it. If you didn't know, if you, if you know, you know, right? <laughs> Houston Texans moved to Tennessee, Tennessee Titans, Bud Adams, we don't like him. But he owns the rights, right? And so the Texans are playing in Nashville, and the Tennessee Titans have the audacity to wear the Oilers' uniforms, the Houston Oilers' uniforms, to put Oilers across their field. Their whole stands is genius marketing and a lot of money that they made that week for sure filled out in blue and red and white. And I was, as they say, triggered. <laughs> I was triggered. Just blatant disrespect for Houston. I wasn't even an Oilers fan back in the 80s. Not at all. I laughed at a restaurant in Lake Jackson, Texas. Remember Garfields? I laughed when they lost a 35-point lead to the Bills. Wasn't even an Oilers fan, but I was frustrated. I was triggered. You're disrespecting our team. I don't even care that much for NFL football anymore. And if you're a Texans fan, which I am, you hope for the best, plan for the worst, right? But I was in on this game. My wife's trying to sleep because she takes Sunday afternoon naps almost every Sunday. But I was in on this game. I was like a 20-year-old again, fired up. We have to win this game. And we did. I was waiting for Love You Blue to come out from like the Texas, Texans players or something. And then I'm trying to evaluate and philosophize on why I was so stirred by that. I was so stirred by that, I think, because they were pretending to be who they weren't. That's not the Tennessee Titans' identity. It was ours. But can I ask you this morning as a Christ follower, something I had to ask myself as I thought about it. Do you live in the real identity that Christ has given you or do sometimes you pretend to be the person you used to be? See, this morning what I want to do is remind us as we start 2024 what our real identity as followers of Jesus really are. Maybe you've forgotten. Maybe you've fallen back into that old self and you're not putting off who you used to be to put on who Christ by his spirit has made you a new creation. And I want to do that this morning 
by looking at perhaps a familiar text. Turn with me to John chapter 17, and we'll be in verses 13 through 24. This is one of my favorite texts in the Bible, John 17. This is a passage where you get a window. You get a window into Jesus' conversation, which is a prayer with his heavenly Father. It's as if the apostle John pulls back the curtain and shows us this intricate relationship between son and father and you see Jesus about to go to the cross and you see John recording for us this beautiful prayer that he prays and he prays this prayer for his disciples and he prays this prayer, catch this, for you. This is the prayer of Jesus for you and it really outlines who he's called disciples of his to be. John 17, page 903 in your Bibles. And I can't think of a more pertinent topic of discussion in our world today than identity. Look around. We're completely confused as a culture about what identity is, even down to male and female. Identity. Who are you? What we do is we decide in our culture that we get to decide who we are. And yet God has made us in his image. And if you know Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, he has made you new. And that newness of life that he's given you calls you to live out the identity he's given you. And interestingly, in this text, a text where Jesus is praying for us, there's all kind of identity and value and how you ought to live today. Check it out with me. John 17, and I'll pick it up kind of in the middle of this prayer. He's already prayed for the disciples and their protection in the world. He hasn't prayed that they would not be in the world, but that they would be protected from the world. In verse 13, he says this. So look, I'm going to show you four identity markers that really define what a disciple of Jesus really is and what we ought to be living how we ought to be living. Verse 13, I'll pick it up there. But now, this is Jesus speaking to his Father about disciples. I am coming to you, Father, and these things I speak into the world that they, disciples, may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Kids, if you've ever thought, God doesn't want me to enjoy life and have joy, you're wrong. Jesus desires your joy to be made complete, but look at how. For I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, hated us, disciples, because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. I don't ask that you take them out of the world, note that, sometimes that's the way we want to live, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. Check this, 17, sanctify them in the truth. What's truth? Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Verse 20. For I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they all may be one just as you and I, Father, are one, 
are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. If you think that's hard in the ESV, it's harder in the King James, I promise. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them. That they may be one. Here it is again. Even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. Why? To see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Wow, what a prayer. What a prayer for his 12 disciples. What a prayer for you and me. Let me give you identity marker number one for a believer. See, disciples of Jesus are first learners. We are learners who seek to live by the truth of God's word. Do you see it there? Verse 14 says, I have given them, disciples, my disciples, God's word. The world has hated them because of it. But look at verse 17. This is kind of key for this first thought. Sanctify them. Sanctify means what? It means to set apart. Sanctify them in the truth. What's truth? Your word is truth. This is the immediate words of Jesus that he's given his disciples as well as the rest of the truth that we have from God's word. So disciples are learners who seek to live by God's word. It's interesting when you look further in the gospels, you continue to see this. In a number of places you see, remember when Jesus was calling his disciples to himself and they wanted to follow him as a rabbi? And Jesus says, my yoke is easy. Come and follow me. Come and what? Learn from me. Do you know what a yoke is in first century? It's a picture of something that's used on animals. Remember, it's an agrarian society in first century, and a farmer would take a wooden object and put it over the ox, the old ox. And then, I should have brought a picture for you. There's an object over their shoulders that extended to the young ox. And the young ox didn't know how to help plow the field. And so the old ox would teach the young ox. It, it was buckled in to the plow. And so if the young ox, who was bound by this yoke, this weight on his shoulders that he couldn't get out of, he couldn't go off to the left or the right. He couldn't shrink back or move ahead of the old ox. So the old ox, the yoke would help the young ox learn from the old ox. And so the Pharisees or religious leaders, the rabbis of Jesus' day, would have a yoke. And it wasn't physical. It wasn't physical that they would put on them. But there was a yoke that they had, meaning they had to take on whatever the old ox, if you will, the, the older rabbi had for them to learn. And it usually it involved keeping the law. Not only keeping the law, but keeping his own commandments. And it, and it kind of would look like this in present day. If, if I'm going to disciple another young man, I'm going to call him to read his Bible four times a week. I'm going to call him to meet with me. I'm going to call... And the rabbis of Jesus' day laid heavy yoke, heavy, heavy yoke 
on their disciples. And Jesus says, come and learn from me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. See, we're learners who learn the truth from Jesus, whose yoke is easy and burden is as light. And you see the same truth when you come to Matthew 28. Remember the Great Commission? You could probably, kids, even memorize the Great Commission. You know that we're called to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then what? What's the last phrase? Teaching them to do what? Teaching them to know? It's not what it says. Teaching them to, disciples, to obey. To obey. And that's the part of discipleship that's harder. We can come on Sunday morning and we can learn. And we can file our little worship guide away with all of our notes But what Jesus is saying, what discipleship looks like, is that we are learners who seek to not only know the truth, but live by the truth. And so, disciples of Jesus, we follow, we learn the truth of God's Word. See, the Word of God is our due north. It's where we grow. It's where we learn. It's what we submit to. And that's what we believe at Christ Community Church as we begin the year. And maybe you're newer, maybe you need to be reminded this church is rooted in the Word of God. That on Sunday morning you're going to come and you're going to hear the Word of God preached, not just some story that I came up with or some thoughts that I have, but we're in a text opening it up, understanding it. We want to feed you a meal on Sunday morning. So you learn the word, you know the word, and you live the word. We want you to be transformed by the renewing of your mind by the word of God. That's why we exposit the text on Sunday morning. That's why we're committed to expository teaching. That's why we're taking even a hard book like the book of Revelation and walking through it this year. To learn who God is and how he's revealed himself. And in the book of Revelation, our hope to come. And on a practical level, you're going, well, I I open the Bible and it's hard for me. And I need help. We're here. We are happy to walk with you to open the word and teach you how to study the word. To give you resources to know the word. We have a plethora of resources in the back. I'll post some today on social media so you know and you have resources to be equipped to study the Word of God. And on a personal note, let me just ask you, are you a disciple of Jesus who is seeking to learn? Are you a disciple of Jesus who is seeking to learn and be transformed? Or maybe you're just like, man, I've, I've read through the Bible, I, I'm, I, I already know. So, so, so it's not that meaningful to me. Man, I've been studying the Bible for 20 years and there's new things that I learn every day and new applications that I learn every day. Jesus said it this way, blessed is he who thirsts and hungers for righteousness for they will be satisfied. There's deep joy in opening God's word to us that we might learn and grow and be disciples who are learning and growing in him. I've had this quote I came to faith in 1995, I think in 1996. I started, somebody in my church gave me a book by A.W. Tozer. Perhaps you know that name. 
And I remember like underlying almost everything in the book. You ever read a book where you're just underlining everything? You're like, I've just wasted a lot of highlighter because it's all so good. That's the way I felt with Tozer. But there was one quote in the first book I read of it. I think it was from The Attributes of God. And it it goes like this, and I think we have it up here. It says, whatever keeps me, and I have this laminated. It's in my Bible. This is about the only thing I've kept up with for about 20 years. It's in my Bible. It's in my daytimer sometimes. Whatever keeps, because it's a reminder. Whatever keeps me from my Bible is my enemy. However harmless it may appear to be. Anybody? Whatever harmless it may appear to be, whatever engages my mind. When I should be meditating on God and things eternal, does injury to my soul. Let the cares of life crowd out the scripture and I've suffered loss where I can least afford it. Let me accept, this is important in today's world, let me accept anything else instead of the scriptures, my own thoughts, other people's thoughts, and I've been cheated and robbed to my own eternal confusion. You might take a picture of that. Maybe you get some laminating and you laminate that. And be reminded each day of what you need to grow. See, disciples of Jesus are learners who seek to live by the word of God, the truth of the word of God. But is that it? Is that all, is that all that's to this walk with Jesus? Is that the only identity we have? I don't think so. We've got to take our orthodoxy, which we learn and we put in here, we got to put it into orthopraxy in the way that we live with the people that we live around. Anybody know that believer who knows a lot but cannot have a conversation with anybody without getting in an argument about something? The second thought is this, and you see it mixed into this text. See, disciples of Jesus are not only learners, but we are a family. We're a family who seek to live In God's community. Do you see over and over again in this text, particularly in verse 22? Can somebody help me out back here? In verse 22, that they may be one over and over and over. That they, disciples, Jesus is praying for our oneness. He's praying for our unity. Here's the thing about unity. When you and I think about how you would define unity without looking at a dictionary, you would probably define unity first as the absence of conflict, as the absence of problems. And that's not untrue. Unity is certainly a lack of conflict and tension and trouble. But two things. Sometimes people who are unified and close to one another, they can argue and they can get through it and they're more unified, right? It's not the absence of conflict, but it is the presence of love. It is the presence of care. It is the presence of bearing burdens with one another that we are one. That's the idea, I think, that Jesus is primarily targeting. It's the idea that we call it community, real biblical community that we live with one another in unity and care for one another And it's interesting because Jesus doesn't just pray that. Check this. Jesus doesn't just pray that for us. There's a model here, isn't there? Jesus says, as we are one, 
take a drink of coffee and think about this with me, okay? For eternity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have been three distinct persons of the Trinity in one, and they have relationship and unity and community within that Trinitarian relationship. That's what John 7 is. It's this beautiful picture of the relationship between son and father. And so, follow the logic here. If God has made you in his image, and he has called you to himself, do you think that you don't need community with other believers? If there is a built-in community within the Godhead, perhaps you're bent or your personality is introverted, hermit, I don't need people. You do need people. God's built you that way. We're a family. We're a family of believers who live in this context, in church community. That's God's, Jesus' desire for his disciples. It's part of who you are, and it's part of what you need, whether you believe you need it or not. Think about the metaphors that, that the New Testament uses for the church, for you. We're a household. It's family language, isn't it? We're a body, a body with different parts, but we're one body. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. That is family language that the New Testament uses to describe us as a family as a community. The book of Acts chapter 2 kind of outlines a number of these things. You've likely seen this before, but let me just read the early church. When the Spirit of God descended and the church began in Acts chapter 2, it's a great window into the early church and how they operated as believers in Christ. Look at it. It says, and they devoted themselves, they're together, to the apostles' teaching. So they're learning. They just saw a bunch of miracles right before this, and they go to the Word. And they say, we're going to learn together. We're going to study the Word together. And what? Fellowship. That's koinonia. That's relational. To the breaking of bread and prayers, and all came upon every soul. That's worship. Many wonders and signs being done through the apostles. Look at 44. And all who believed were what? Together. And had all things in common. This is where Americans get a little uncomfortable. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all who had need. They were sacrificing for one another. See the word all. And day by day they were attending the temple. Meaning they're going to worship together. Opening the word together. Singing together. And breaking bread in their home. Sounds like a community group. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Do you see community here? Do you see unity here? Do you see care here? This is exactly what you see. That's who we are. We're, we're, we're a family. People of the word living in community. Those are two markers for us of who we are. That's how our church ought to to look. At C3, we, we want you, and maybe you get tired of it on Sunday morning hearing me or Robbie or other elders or other people say, get in a community group. 
That's where you're going to do life with people. And listen, for us, a community group is a venue. It's not an end in and of itself. It's a venue for, for you to be able to interact with other believers in your local church as God has designed to be cared for by your community group, to be loved by your community group, to open up to a group of people that you've gotten to know, to be loved on, to share with one another, to learn together. All believers need a community. And God has designed the local church to be that community. You don't take communion with the universal church, do you? You don't see baptisms of everyone who comes to faith in Christ, do you? <laughs> you do that in a local church where your relationships are tight and close. That's what we do as a church to help you. And, and it's not the only thing that we do. There's a men's ministry. There's a women's ministry. There's student ministry and kids. But you've got to take initiative to be a part of that. You know, one of the things that we often think about community is that we find it. We're going to find community. And I think there's some truth in the, in the idea that we find people that maybe they're like us or in the stage of life with us. And, and that makes sense, that we find people that, that we would want to do life with. But let me, let me be clear about something. You don't just find community, you build it. Community is built. It's not just found somewhere. So maybe, I don't know your church history I've been on the other side of that for a long time, and I've watched people bounce from church to church to church to church because they're saying, I haven't found what I'm looking for, but they haven't engaged deeply in pursuing relationships with people to build what they're trying to find. So as a church, I would encourage you to be a part of community. That means you've got to take some initiative, even if it's, you have to be a little courageous to do it if you're new, right? You're like, i got to i got to show up at somebody's house I don't know and my kids are here, right? But you have to take initiative just like any other relationship. So here's the question that I would ask you. If being a part of God's family means that you're a part of a community, what kind of family member, think about this, what kind of family member are you? Think about your own family. Is there that person in your family that's kind of like the glue, who brings people together, that's always planning things? Maybe there's that person. That's my aunt in our family. She just brings everybody together for holidays and events. She sends the cards to, to everybody when it's their birthday. Maybe that's you. Are you the glue? Or maybe you're this person that's along for the ride. Sometimes I feel like, I'm along for the ride. Okay, where are we going? What are we doing? Or maybe you're like Cousin Eddie from the Christmas story, or or uh, Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Cousin Eddie shows up like once every five, ten years. He's estranged from the family, but when he shows up, it's all about him, right? That's not the person you want to be in the, in the body of Christ. What kind of family member are you in the community of faith? We want to be people engaged with one another who are participating in the body of Christ. So disciples are people who who, who live by the word, they're people who are also committed to the family and the community, but, but what do you have with those two things? And it's a beautiful thing. You have a community of believers. And some of us are tempted to go, that's what being a Christian is only about. 
It's certainly not less than that, is it? But I think you know it's, it's more than that. It's more than coming on Sunday and being a part of a community group and learning and growing together. Jesus has left us some marching orders, has he not? In this text, he says, I have not taken them out of this world. Why has he not taken us out of this world? He's not taken us out of this world because in this text, what you see is this community and the unity that should be present here and the care that should be present here is a light to who? The world around us. Jesus wants us not only to be learners and family. See, third, disciples of Jesus are missionaries. And when you think of the word missionary, you might think of the guy in Kenya. You might get think of the guy in the Middle East. But you are a missionary. He's left you here. That's part of your identity as well. Go, therefore, and make disciples to share your faith with other people who don't know, the world around you that, that doesn't know. And, and surely... It's important that our lives are lived together and our lives are lived in a way that morally points to Jesus, and that's great, but that's not what he's saying here. If you look at this text, what you actually see is that I don't ask only, verse 20, look at it, but for them, I also ask for those who will believe in me through their actions, is that what it says? Through their good behavior? Through their morality? No, through their what? Word. The gospel is a message that's proclaimed, that's heralded. See, we are missionaries who seek to live on God's mission. He hasn't just left us here to have potlucks together. That's wonderful. He's left us here with marching orders. Some of you, I know some guys in here that have been in the military. When your commanding officer gives you marching orders, you obey, you do it. You follow it. You carry it out. What are the marching orders of the church? Matthew 28, go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey, and I will be with you always. Make disciples. Go. The first step of making disciples is, is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ that people might come to believe. He wants to use you as a royal ambassador, right? When I was a kid, I was in Baptist world. We had RAs. We were royal ambassadors. Anybody there? Right? What does that mean? What does it mean to be an ambassador for Christ? It means you are in a foreign land, and you are representing Christ there. That's your life. We are ambassadors of Christ. This is a foreign land. We are exiles. We are sojourners, according to the New Testament, that live here, not just to learn together, not just to be a community together but to tell of God and his kingdom and his son who reigns. So we're missionaries. That's who we are. This is clear throughout the New Testament. We're a royal priesthood. We're a chosen race. Speaking of the family of God, why? Why has God done this? To proclaim the excellencies of him who have called us out of darkness. That's what has happened if you know Jesus. He's called you out of darkness to his marvelous light, to proclaim it to those who are in it. Well, 
This is why we encourage you. This is why we try to equip you. This is why we spent the whole summer, this past summer in Apologia, trying to help our body understand the times that we live in to how to minister to people who think very, very differently than we do. This is what we desire to do. We desire to be an equipping place for you to provide opportunities for you to share the gospel. This is why we've partnered with different ministries, particularly under Over Fellowship. And we're going to continue to do that month to month, go out and give people a meal and also open our mouths and share the good news of the gospel with people because that, the good news of the gospel, is meant to be shared with our mouths. That's the power of God to salvation for people. And it doesn't mean, listen, it doesn't mean that your good deeds aren't important, but here's the deal. What I often do is I hide behind those good deeds and so I, like, just believe somehow that that has like, telepathic powers to convert somebody. And as important as deed is, we've got to proclaim the gospel in relationships and with people around us. So let me ask you, C3, who doesn't know Jesus in your family, in your work? Who's a neighbor that doesn't know Jesus? Who's in your kind of family network or social network who doesn't know Jesus? Are you praying for them? Are you, are you serving them? Are you looking for opportunities to invite them over and share the gospel with them? To speak to them about how God has, by his grace, has changed your life. And here, here's the challenge there's a lot of challenges in effectively what, what we would call evangelism, right? It's scary. <laughs> Is it scary to you to, to open your mouth and share the gospel with somebody? That can be a, a scary thing. And in and, and our family, there, there's things that I fear. I, I, don't, I don't fear getting, it's, it's really interesting, I don't fear getting up here and sharing and preaching. I don't fear sharing the gospel with somebody. But there are things that I do fear, and I'm going to tell you what they are, um, not so you can make fun of me and not so that you can plan this, but I, I want you to see maybe a parallel. Like the idea of getting in, up in front of a bunch of people and doing like karaoke scares me to death. I would rather swim with sharks, okay? The idea of getting in, up in front of a bunch of people and dancing even, like at a wedding, no. Nah. Like unless it's country music, I'm good. My wife, on the other hand, loves dancing. It's like on her bucket list for me to buy her a horse and take ballroom dancing lessons. All right? She's not in here. She's back there today. And I want to say I'm going to do both of those things. It scares me to death. I'd rather swim with sharks, man. Why? It's not that I can't learn how to do it. She's better than me, number one. But there is an underlying pride in that, isn't there? It's uncomfortable to me. I don't want to do it unless I'm halfway decent at it. So I just prefer not to do it because I'm uncomfortable. But there's a, there can be a deep-seated pride, and that's what it is for me, I'll just say. There's a deep-seated pride in that. I don't want people laughing at me. Think about that as it relates to sharing the gospel. It may be that you need more equipping and you, and you need more... Um, confidence in how you share your faith, but I think deep down what actually is going on, at least has been with me and maybe with you is 
I really don't want to share with that person because I don't want them to reject me. I don't want to, to fumble my words as if that person really understands that or not. I don't want uncomfortableness in my life. I don't want to be rejected, oftentimes lying deep underneath that might be present for you. And so the, 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 the prayer, I think, is, I know the prayer in my life, the prayer is this. Ask God for this, okay? Is my heart burdened for the lost? Is my heart burdened for the lost and their eternal destiny and the gain for them and their eternal destiny? At what point is it going to outweigh the unpredicted result of me opening my mouth? And sharing the gospel, even if it means I'm embarrassed, even if it means I fumble around. That's why Paul could say this at some point in his life, I'd be a fool for Christ. Are you willing to be a fool for Christ? For the gain of someone who doesn't know Jesus, that God would move in their heart through the gospel message that they might believe. Which one outweighs each other? Which one? Is it the uncomfortableness of it? Is it the pride of it and the way that you're going to feel and look? Or is it that person receives the gain of eternal life in Jesus? I'm praying for a heart burden for us. That we would care more about eternity than we do about the pride of being told no. We're learners, we're family, we're missionary. But for what end? To what end are we missionaries? To what end are we a community? To what end are we learners? Look at verse 24, and I think we find this answer. Verse 24 says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. See, he's about to go to the cross He's about to die and be resurrected and then spend eternity at the right hand of the Father. Why does he want that for us? To see his glory. If that were you and me, that would be the most arrogant statement in the world, would it not? I want people to see my glory. But it's not arrogant for the Son of God who is God himself, is it? It is right and good. To see his glory. If you note, if you come back in your Bible to the beginning, the bookend, the front bookend of John 17, Jesus says this, and this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth. And then he says, glorify me to his Father in your own presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. See, ultimately what we are as disciples of Jesus we're worshipers. See, the chief end of missions, John Piper says it well, is not missions. It's worship. It's that the people will worship from every tribe, tongue, and language throughout the earth. That's what we see in the book of Revelation. The ultimate end is not just that we're a community, but we're a community of worshipers who are singing, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Ultimate end is not that we're just learners now. We need to be. But one day he will open all of that up for us in his presence. What does a disciple look like? A disciple is a worshiper, a missionary. A worshiper is part of a family, a worshiper. A disciple is a learner, 
A disciple is part of a family. A disciple is a worshiper. A disciple is a missionary. Last night, close this. Last night, I turned on the game again. I got the remote again. And I watched the Houston Texans come onto the field in their jerseys. They're on the road. They're in enemy territory. White, blue, red. Texans helmets. They weren't pretending. That's another dig. Sorry. Still not over it. And they went into enemy territory, and they won themselves a playoff spot against the Indianapolis Colts. And I began to look in the stands later in the game. Maybe you were watching it as well. All you non-football fans are like, man, this guy's killing me. Just give me some other kind of things. End of the game, fourth and two, they don't make it. Their running back missed a little catch. And, and, and the camera panned, if you remember, panned to these twin girls who were Colts fans, and they were doing this, and then they fell to the ground. But I don't know if you noticed, but next to them, a guy that looked like their brother. He had a C.J. Stroud uniform on, and he's doing this. Yeah. <laughs> He's in enemy territory. He's in Indianapolis, but he's proudly representing the Texans, even though it looks like his whole family are Hoof fans, Colts fans. That you? Is that you? As you think about your faith in Christ, Do you blend in to the crowd or do you faithfully represent the identity of who you really are as a believer in Jesus? As a church and as disciples of Jesus, as we begin 2024, man, it's easy to blend into the world, isn't it? It's easy to put on the old uniform, isn't it? I want to blend in. I want to be a disciple of Jesus. Your takeaway is this. We want to be disciples of Jesus who live by the word, who live on mission, in community, for the glory of our God. Amen? Let's do that this year. Let me pray.